Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, on the second in our special series on artificial intelligence, we hear from two companies involved in the AI revolution. One of the biggest and oldest names in computing. Microsoft's long taking the view that we need both responsible organisations like ourselves to exercise self-restraint, and we also need regulation. And one, a young startup making waves in this booming industry. Two days ago, we released a Hugging Chat, which is basically an open source alternative to ChatGPT. The CEO of Silicon Valley, darling Hugging Face, tells us what it's like to be riding the AI wave. It's crazy. There was millions of views on the release posts. Uh, we see like hundreds of thousands of people using it. And the head of responsible AI at Microsoft tells us the industry wants and needs regulation, but we should resist calls to pause AI development. There's no question here that we will need new laws and norms and standards to build confidence in this new technology. Rather than pausing important research and development work that is underway right now, including as to the safety of these models, I really think we should focus on a plan of action. Want to know where the world is heading with AI? Then subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts to get this series or visit weft.ch slash podcasts. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and with episode two of our series on generative AI. AI becoming this kind of common good of humanity where everyone can understand it and use it in a positive and a beneficial way. This is Radio Davos. Welcome to Radio Davos and the second in our special series on generative artificial intelligence. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Benjamin Larson, who leads artificial intelligence and machine learning at the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution at the World Economic Forum. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Thanks, Robin. I'm doing great. Good to be here. You're in San Francisco, where I was a few weeks ago. How's the weather there? The weather currently is uh, rather cloudy. You know, we have that that gloomy uh, San Francisco spring. So it's weather with character, like like the city itself. It is, definitely. You're here to kind of introduce this episode with me. We're going to talk about the interviews that, that are going to play out, two interviews today. Um, but before we do that, just remind us w- what I was doing there, what you were doing there in San Francisco at the end of April. What was that meeting about? So in late uh, April uh, of this year, we convened uh, the Responsible AI Leadership at Global Summit on Generative AI here at the World Economic Forum's uh, Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in the Presidio of San Francisco. During that summit, which was hosted in, in partnership with AI Common, we really sought to guide technical experts and policymakers on uh, the responsible development and, and governance of, of generative AI systems. And I managed to get some interviews there with some of the people attending. There were people from companies, from academia, from institutions, and we've got two of them today. So one of them, they were both in the opening montage we heard there, is the chief responsible AI officer at Microsoft, a company that probably needs little or no introduction from us one of the big computing companies that is at the forefront of AI. They've invested in OpenAI, the company that makes ChatGPT. And then the second interview we'll hear is with perhaps a lesser-known company called Hugging Face. I speak to Thomas Wolfe, who's the co-founder of this uh, company that's been around for five or six years or so. What's Hugging Face? Hugging Face, that is a company and an open-source community that specializes in natural language processing and, and machine learning. And what they do is that they provide tools and, and libraries uh, through their platform to make it easier for developers to work with NLP models and the tools uh, and systems that are created at the team at, at Hugging Face and, and elsewhere 
are really used by a, a lot of different research organizations, including uh, some of the very largest uh, companies out there. You have the uh, Facebook, uh, Artificial Intelligence Research, Google Research, DeepMind, Amazon, Apple, uh, etc. Perhaps you can also help me with some jargon busting. I'm going to fire a couple of things at you that are mentioned in these interviews. One of them is open source. What do you mean by open source? Yeah, perhaps um, I'll situate it within sort of the larger area because the area of AI development and release is, is a very large topic. And some people, they see it, they see the issue as sort of a, a choice between two options. So we have open source on one hand, and then you have closed source on the other hand. And open source, that really means that many people, they can work on an AI system together. They can make sure that the system, it meets everyone's needs. One particular project here, that would be a Big Science Bloom project, which was a global effort at developing a, a large language model. And that um, effort, it brought together thousands of research, uh, researchers internationally, as well as uh, national resources to, to train the actual model. And where open source, it allows for a more sort of proactive approach where people, they can uh, contribute on an open basis. Then there are also some risks, some downstream risks in terms of, of misuse by uh, bad actors. So a- another bit of jargon we can bust here together is this uh, expression black box, the black box question. Could you explain to anyone who's never heard of that and is not in this field, what, what's meant by that? Definitely. So you can um, imagine perhaps that you have an AI system that make uh, important decisions like uh, approving loan applications or predicting medical diagnosis and so on. And the problem here that is that sometimes some of these AI systems, they can make decisions without clearly explaining how or why they reached those conclusions. So it's a black box where you put in data and it gives you an answer, but you don't know how it got there, basically. So this lack of transparency, it raises concerns because people, they want to understand the reasoning behind uh, the decisions, and that can make it difficult to trust and verify for example, the fairness, accuracy, and potential biases of an AI system. And so all of these issues are things that were discussed at that meeting that are being discussed by everyone involved in AI. And those are the issues that will come up when people talk about regulation. What do you think we should be listening out for when, when we're interested in regulation? Yeah, so I think front and center at the moment is, of course, uh, the incoming EU AI Act which is a horizontal and risk-based approach to AI regulation. And it's by far the most comprehensive regulation that's out there. So in all likelihood, uh, precedent will be set by how the EU AI Act, it affects uh, industry. And we can also look at regulations such as uh, the Digital Services Act, uh, which already has set up a a regulator that will begin to start uh, auditing um, some models and and systems as well as um, looking at that potential impact. And then you have, we saw the recent uh, Senate hearing in the US where we had also Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, uh, providing his testimony. And we see that in the US regulators, they're slowly waking up to the importance of AI regulations. And uh, that has to be viewed alongside other initiatives such as the Biden administration's uh, new actions to promote responsible AI innovations that protects Americans' uh, rights and, and safety. And then we also have an AI Bill of Rights released by the White House in the U.S. And we have the risk management framework as well that provides a, a process that 
integrate security, privacy and cyber supply chain risk management activities. Very, very busy discussions about regulation. And of course, we had these discussions in San Francisco a month ago. Where's the World Economic Forum going now on this? Yeah, so what emerged from uh, the summit is really a set of recommendations uh, that will be released in June, aiming to have a broad and and actionable impact uh, that varying stakeholders they can look to and and learn from as we take these conversations forward. Separately, we're also moments away from launching a new initiative on generative AI, and there's a lot lot of details that will follow in, in the near future. We'll be covering that on these podcasts as well. Let's listen to both the interviews right now. Uh, Benjamin Larson, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Robin. I'm Natasha Crampton, Microsoft's Chief Responsible AI Officer. Natasha, what is a responsible AI officer? Great question. So in a in a nutshell, my job is to put our six AI principles that we've adopted at Microsoft to work across the company. So what that means in practice is that we've established a governance structure, we've established policies, we train our engineers. Our six principles for our North Star are fairness, privacy and security, reliability and safety, inclusiveness, accountability and transparency. One of our innovations is that we've taken all of those six principles and double-clicked down on them and, and written actionable guidelines for our engineering teams so that when we are shipping our new generative AI products, whether that's the new Bing or the co-pilots that we've built for Outlook and Teams and, uh, and Excel, that our engineers are baking responsible AI considerations in from the outset uh, and making sure that those systems are going to live up to our values. Is that enough to ensure, to reassure the public and to reassure the world that these systems will be safe? Or do you think there also needs to be some kind of guidance from governance bodies, from governments, or from some kind of regulation, which is central to the discussions that are happening here in San Francisco? Microsoft's long taken the view that we need both responsible organizations like ourselves to exercise self-restraint and put in place the best practices that we can to make sure that AI systems are safe and trustworthy and reliable. And we also need regulation. There's, There's no question here that we will need new laws and norms and standards to build confidence in this new technology and also to give Uh, everyone the protection under the law. Um, While we would love it to be the case that all companies decided uh, to adopt the most responsible practices that they can, that is not a realistic um, assumption and we think it's important that there is uh, this baseline protection for everyone and that will help to build trust in the technology. Tell us something about yourself. How how did you come to be a Chief Responsible AI Officer. What what kind of career path leads to that? Sure. So I uh, I've always had an interest in the intersection between uh, law and technology and society. Uh, so at university, I trained as as both a lawyer and a and a technologist. And after uh, several years in in law firms, I, I made my way to Microsoft and. I started in the New Zealand and Australian subsidiaries, and I think working in those subsidiaries was really 
formative uh, to my uh, to my job here. You're very many miles away from headquarters at that point. You need to learn to listen very closely to the diverse customer voices that you hear when you're interacting directly with customers and also regulators, other societies. You're right there on the coalface of those interactions. So I learned that you had to listen and you had to localize. I think it really taught me that technology, like many other things in life, is in fact local. And so I bring those experiences to my uh, job now in, in making sure that when we are working on uh, important issues like fairness and transparency, that we're really bringing a diverse set of voices to the table. And it makes me remember that you know, I'm, I'm in a role where I need to think about the impact of AI on society. That is not just society in the US or Europe. We really need to bring a global perspective to this work. Was there a moment in your life when you realized the power of AI? So last summer, two things were happening at once. I had early access to an early version of, of GPT-4, and I was able to prompt it with a, a bunch of queries. And honestly, the results really wowed me. Uh, they were quite unlike anything that I'd seen in the past. And I think advances that I'd been expecting to see further into the distance were there here and now. Uh, the second thing that I was doing at that time was working on a product integration. So we were integrating DALI, which is OpenAI's model that uh, it takes words, descriptions, and turns them into images. Now, uh, personally, I'm much more of a wordsmith than I am an artist. And so I found it uh, quite joyful and delightful to be able to see uh, things that I could describe well with words generated into art that I would personally never be capable of producing myself. Could you give us some idea of what those things, when you were playing around with that first iteration of GPT-4, what were the prompts and what were the responses you were getting that made you say, wow? Well, one thing I did was that um, I, I prompted an early version of GPT-4 to produce a bill that could uh, regulate AI based on an impact um, assessment methodology. And I, I got an output that was a very decent first draft. Now, <laughs> I'm a lawyer by training, and so I could also spot uh, errors in the way that it had been pulled together, but it was striking just both in its, its structure and its content as to how much um, it was capable of. So if you'd asked, let's compare it to you had a, a junior colleague and you said, prepare this for me, how long would you have expected them to take to produce that document? And, and would you have been pleased with the outcome from, from a, a junior colleague of that? Look, I think um, a, a junior colleague uh, probably would have taken a number of hours to produce what was produced uh, in, in that you know, momentary time frame that I was using GPT-4 for. Uh, for. Uh, now, I think I would have been impressed. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it, it's likely that the, the junior colleague would have uh, taken certain approaches and sort of excelled in areas where GPT-4 didn't. So, you know, I think the net of it is that uh, this technology can be a very good first draft partner in high stakes scenarios. Um, of course, it's very, very important to be judicious, judicious about it. And I also think it's important to understand 
where the technology is very, very good and how to combine the best of that technology with the best of humans. And that's really certainly where Microsoft starts, that this technology is essentially a co-pilot for doing these tasks. It's, it's, it is not the case that we can outsource uh, writing legislation to uh, GPT-4 or any other equivalent technology. I'm quite interested in this concept of a black box where, well, maybe you could explain what that is. How would you explain black box to someone who's never heard that term? So when I hear concerns about the black box nature of AI, what I really understand by that is that, you know, concerns that AI is a bit mysterious. We don't really understand how it works. We don't really understand how it's made uh, and, and what its risk profile really is. And so I think addressing that set of concerns really um, involves getting a deeper understanding of how these systems have been built. What is the data that they've been trained on? What is the actual function that they are serving? Um, what are the mitigations that have been put into place? Because we really need to understand all of, all of those dimensions in order to be able to have informed policy uh, conversations, informed conversations as members of society um, about how we want to use these technologies. Now, sometimes a response to the black box type uh, concern is, is the suggestion that we should just open up uh, the hood for all to see the mechanics of how these systems uh, are built. Um, and I think we actually need a more nuanced approach than that. You know, Microsoft has a transparency pr principle which we're committed to upholding. But one thing that we've learned over time with that principle, which is very important, is that actually different stakeholders have different needs when it comes to transparency. And it's actually not helpful to the general member of the public uh, to uh, have a, a very sort of in-depth, under-the-hood look at, at what the how the system is works in a very, very deep, you know, scientific way. What is actually more helpful is to understand the building blocks, the core building blocks of that technology, and for a user and member of the general public to then be empowered to ask the right questions so that if, if they are using the technology and want to um, be aware of the capabilities and limitations of it, they understand that. If, they, if the technology is being used um, in a decision-making scenario, they need to understand enough in order to be able to make sure that they are able to assert their rights in respect of such decisions. So I think overall, you know, the, the black box concern is fundamentally a transparency concern. Um, and then we need to remember that transparency is not going to be effective if we try and take a one-size-fits-all approach. We actually need to adapt different approaches to transparency depending on stakeholder needs. And is it a risk that AI development is moving too fast? Famously, some people have suggested that and we need to pause or slow down. So there I think... Um, Rather than pausing important research and development work that is underway right now, including as to the safety of these models, which I strongly believe needs to uh, be pursued, I really think we should focus on a plan of action. We should focus on making sure that tech companies and policymakers are coming together to make sure that there is a common understanding of how the technology works. We should also be bringing our best ideas to the table about uh, the practices that are effective today to make sure that we're identifying and measuring and mitigating risks. 
And we should also be bringing our best ideas to the table about the new laws and norms and standards that we need in this space. For Microsoft's part, I feel that we are ready to meet this AI moment because of all the work that we've done leading up to it. So the Responsible AI uh, program that today I lead has in fact been going on for more than six years at that point. And over that time, we have consistently been working towards operationalizing our commitments across the company. So I believe we are now in a position to move both thoughtfully and nimbly, um, but it's very critical that at this moment we have these broad societal conversations about the technology so that together we can chart a, a path forward. You've been working on this for several years. The fact that the general public is suddenly aware of ChatGPT in particular, but other advances, it's, it's not taken you as a person by surprise that suddenly there's all this conversation going on. This is an ongoing conversation that's been happening for years, but I guess it's accelerating now and the pressures are accelerating. Would that be fair to say? I think it's a broader conversation and that's an essential part of, of what we need to be doing in this moment. You know, at Microsoft, we've been releasing generative AI systems for several years now. The first generative AI system that we released was a product called GitHub Copilot. Um, this is a system that allows you to, in plain English, uh, uh, insert um, descriptions of code that you'd like to generate. And the system takes your natural language and converts it into code and, and developers from the least experienced developers to the most experienced developers find this to be a tool that is just uh, extremely productivity enhancing and it's been very well received by them. But those first earliest editions of uh, Copilot we released almost two years ago now. And what we've been able to do is to take the learnings from those early systems and continue to apply them to uh, systems like the new Bing that we've built or the new Copilots that we've built for Outlook and Teams and Word and all of the Microsoft Office products that many people use on a day-to-day -day basis. So we have had this ongoing incremental experience with these systems, but I do think now is the time to have the broad societal conversation. And that just can't be technologists alone. Um, we need to hear from governments, from civil society, from academia. Um, this big broad tent that is now being opened by making available products that are easy to understand and easy to use by, by anyone, I think is a really important step for the current moment. And finally, is there a book and a podcast and a film or any of, and or any of those things you'd recommend? Uh, on the book, I think Azeem Azhar's Exponential, or uh, if you're in the US, I believe it's called The Exponential Age, is a really helpful book for this moment. Uh, Azeem digs into four general purpose technologies, computing, biology, renewable energy, and manufacturing. And what he uh, exposes is this gap between the advances of the technology, which he would argue are happening on an exponential basis, and the ability of uh, societal institutions to keep up. What I think is really valuable about the book is that it connects sort of social and political and economic and technological trends in a way that's helpful for the current moment because we really need to be having this uh, multifaceted conversation about the implications of AI. And I think he does a nice job of connecting those dots. 
Ultimately, he concludes um, that, you know, even with these exponential advances in technology, um, human ingenuity is such that uh, we're always able to not just control that technology, but shape it in the direction that we want to uh, it to serve us. And I think that's a really important conclusion to draw at the current time. Azim, Azim actually co-hosted a a podcast with me in Davos. Oh, and so fantastic. people can listen back on that. And we talked about this word exponential, which is in everything he does, he's talking about this, which is a, a challenging idea of the speed of change of things. Are there, are there other things you're going to recommend to us? I might also recommend a podcast by our uh, Microsoft CTO, Kevin Scott. I know there are many uh policymakers and business leaders looking to have an understanding, a deeper understanding of the technology in this moment. This podcast is called Behind um, the Scenes of Tech with uh, Kevin Scott. I think what he does a nice job of is uh, meeting with some really fascinating guests from AI experts to musicians to neuroscientists to hear about the frontiers of technology. And he tells not just their own personal stories, but uh, helps to have provide a very accessible and engaging introduction to the technology as well. So I think that's something uh, that I'd, I'd commend to your listeners if, if they're interested in digging a bit deeper into the technology and the stories of the people who are making it. Brilliant, I'll check that one out. Uh, Natasha Crampton, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Radio Davos and our special series on generative artificial intelligence. That was Natasha Crampton, Chief Responsible AI Officer at Microsoft, speaking to me at the World Economic Forum's Responsible AI Leaders Summit. Our next guest is co-founder and Chief Science Officer of a much younger company. I'll let him introduce himself. So I'm Thomas Wolf. I'm a co-founder CSO of Hugging Face, which is a, a platform for models, datasets, demos in AI. Right, so people who've not heard of Hugging Face, how would you describe what it was and what it's become? It looks like you've had some big news in the last days even. Uh, recently, like two days ago, we released a Hugging Chat, which is basically an open source alternative to, to ChatGPT. And it kind of illustrates quite well, I think, what Hugging Face is about. It's about... Um, like uh, democratizing good uh, AI, and that means for us open source transparency, uh, auditability of models of what you use are very important. So we started actually as an open source company with a, with a framework called Transformers that was uh, designed to give very easy access to all the state-of-the-art uh, AI models. And then based on this uh, open source code base, we actually build uh, a platform to share models, but also to share data set, to share demos. And this platform is the, is the Hugging Face Hub. It's now used by, by thousands of companies. There is more like 200,000 models and data set and demos on it. And the idea is that we can push for good practices by using this platform. So you have like data set uh, sheets, um, you have like model cards that uh, gives a lot of details into uh, how each model was made, what are the limitations, and obviously you can access all these models. So it's, it's really built for transparency. And I guess the third big aspect is the community that uh, started to build around our tools. And that's also this community that create most of these models. So Hugging Chat is powered by community created models. 
Could you explain to the layperson the difference between having an open model and a closed model and why, why is that important? Yeah, sure. Um, I think having an open model is super important. Basically, I think the core of this is the notion of trust that you want to build in these tools. And there's a trust in uh, where they will fail, a trust in where they will work, but also a trust in all the biases that you may have in these tools or how they could or not be misused. And if the model is open, you actually don't have to believe just the people who made it. You can yourself audit the model, uh, read how it was made, dive into training data, uh, raise issues. So we have a lot of like discussion pages around models where people can flag model, raise questions and issues. Um, so it's basically just like the difference between, you know, um, being able to read the code base or being able to see the internals of something like a car where you can open and look at the, the, the engine or a car where everything is locked and you actually have to believe and trust the people who made the car that it's perfect. It's been going for a couple of days, hasn't it? Uh, how how's it going? I mean, just literally. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely one of our biggest, uh, uh, one of our biggest releases up to date. Huh? There was millions of uh, of views on the on the on the release posts. Uh, we see like thousands of hundreds of thousands of people using it. Um, so I think we're we're very happy about it. So what what brought you to this? As I understand it, a few years ago, Hugging Face was a chatbot app for teenagers is that is my wikipedia research right um in 2016 yeah that's right we started as a as a game company uh so six years ago right so today we have we have this hugging chat chat gpt uh, but six years ago the technology for for chat was not there yet and so what we did actually was to open source so some of the research we were doing to share some of the models we have trained and um, in 2019, we had actually uh, this first framework to share models. And this grew really super fast. Basically, you know, in a matter of weeks, people were like using it. Everybody was starting to use it. And that's when we decided to pivot from uh, kind of the, the game approach to more the, the open source community-based approach. Was there a point when you realized that a chat bot app could do more than just be a little bit of fun. Did it, did it, did it dawn on you or did you always know that actually it could be a, a, a tool that could be used for so many things? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I think we have an interesting comeback today on this. Um, but quite quickly, I think we realized that AI was going to be something very big, uh, that the, what, what the model was starting to be able to do and uh, I think the first realization was uh, even before we started open sourcing model, we participated in a, in a competition at this, this, this big conference called New Rips uh, in 2017. So that was just one year after uh, we were created. And we presented one of these models that was, you know, trained with this deep learning approach. And this model was by far the winner of the competition, uh, like really super high above all the other uh, competitors. And that's where we decided, we, we, we kind of had this insight that, yeah, this model were actually much more powerful than uh, we thought previously. And so you've built to the model behind Hugging Chat mm -hmm. is a huge data set, a large language model. Tell us how you did that and tell so, us how so, that works. So what is interesting here is that we're really building this platform to share models, but the one that power Hugging Face, uh, Hugging Chat is not a model that we have trained ourselves. It's a model that's been trained by um, a community called Open Assistant. 
It's a, it's a grassroots community, right? Just, just like a, basically a Discord server. And they've decided themselves to uh, write instructions, uh, write to build a data set themselves that you can access uh, openly online and to train, you know, uh, starting from one of the foundation models that, that was out there, an open source one, they decided to train it on their, on their data set to, to make this open assistant chat. And so in the future, we could see a uh, hugging chat hosting many other chat models, right? That's the first one. I think it's one of the, the best one today, uh, but there is still room for improvement. So there's a few of these out now that people can play around with, these, these um, large language model chatbots. Are they all going to be the same, do you think, or will there be notable differences? I, I'm, I'm guessing it's a bit, because I just played around with the first time last night, very, very briefly, and I, and I was really trying to wonder, is this different from ChatGPT? Mm -hmm. It must be different, but do you know how it will be different? It's a very good question. Actually, that's a lot of my work uh, this month is around that. I think we should have better ways to compare all these models that are out there, right? We, we kind of trying to, we believe a bit the, the hype that we see, uh, but it does not always correlate with the performances that you would like to see on this or this application. So we're working on better evaluation this month, and I hope uh, if we do this podcast again in one month, we'll have more uh, answers to this question. So here we're talking about regulation at this event at the World Economic Forum. I mean, where, where do you stand on how we should pursue regulation or governance? Yeah, it's a good question. I think just like new, any, any new technology, there should be some regulation. Uh, AI is quite complex because there is some data regulation, there is some model regulation, there is some usage regulation. So there is many things that uh, intersect here. Um, but I think we start to see very interesting regulation. Uh, I like what's, what's taking shape in Europe, for instance. I think the, the most interesting thing will be um, if we tailor this uh, like domain by domain. This model can do so many things, but their performance will vary a lot depending on the domain. The impact on society will vary a lot depending on the domain, right? If you're in health, if you have a health advice chatbot, you want these two really good, good advices. If it's like a, a chatbot that's used to help writers, uh, you know, when they have like white page blank, they want to start writing something. Well, the regulation can be pretty light, right? Anything, any new ideas, any brainstorm is fine. So I think the importance will be that um, we take a look at all these different applications and we try to tell something that makes sense for each field. And what about the more kind of upstream for the model itself? Is there any way of regulating that, which some people w would call for, to embed within a large language model something that will stop it doing bad things or is that just an impossible <laughs> dream yeah i think it yeah connected to what i said i think it's it's a bit a strange idea right it's like saying computers or code should be regulated generally i think outside of what you want to use them for it's really hard to make some very you know white thing that say hey this type of computer should be forbidden and we don't see that for a good reason because they are just so um, versatile in what they can do and we see the same with, uh, with models, right? One model that generates fake news might be just perfectly fine for a writer and uh, obviously not fine for like a newspaper and vice versa, right? If you're a writer, you actually don't want like factual correctness all the time. So, so there is many questions and they will just, you can have opposite answers depending on the field you're in. So where do you see Hugging Face going? You've launched this just days ago. You said, talk to me in a month and I can tell you more about it. But what's, what's, your, what's your dream for where 
you could take this company? I mean, our, our two, two main dreams would be to, to see uh, AI becoming this kind of common good of humanity where everyone can have access to it, everyone can understand it and use it in, in a positive and a beneficial way. So that's kind of the very long term place where we would like to be. Um, shorter term, I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm quite worried about more concentrations of power in AI, right? I think if we have just really one dominant actor, it, it's never really good for a field. So I'd like to see a lot of diversity of actors, like a lot of, you know, actors bring their own perspectives. Some of them from the US, some of them from Europe, some of them from developing countries bring their own question, their own like, in AI, you also have this mix of ethical moral values that actually end up being embedded in the model. And you would actually really like to have this diversity of actors that bring diverse perspectives. So that's really what we try to push today is a full community and not just one or two islands where this is created uh, behind closed doors. And where are you seeing your, your technology and your tools being used? Are there some kind of applications that you weren't expecting that people have picked up your technologies and they're integrating it into what they do? Are, are, what, what's most interested you about the users of your product? It's, it's a very wide-ranging question, right? Also because in open source, you, you give a lot of things for free uh, without really monitoring, you know, uh, what people uh, actively used it for. Um, so what we see a lot is a lot of people doing like creative writing or like creative uh, acti uh, application with the models. Uh, in the game industry, I think it's very interesting to see like this, you know, this. Uh, uh, new way to to have game where you can fully interact um, with um, uh, with uh, with uh, non-playing uh, uh, non-active players and um, the the main field where I'm quite excited to see uh, this uh, this technology are I think uh, finance I think it's quite interesting what you what you can do and the Bloomberg model that was released recently is a very interesting one that was also based on some um, open source model as a, as a starting point um, in healthcare so I think there is it's it's a much more complex field but I think there is some very interesting thing you could do to speed up research there um, and the last one I would like to see more is also uh, physics science and basically climate you know climate science. Climate science. Yeah, it'd be very interesting to see this model being used more there. Yeah, I mean, the real utopia, utopianist view is that generative AI can solve all the world's problems on the good side. But I'm just wondering how, how could it help solve climate change? I mean, one way it might be hurting the climate because of all the power used to this huge amount of computing power, which requires energy. But where do you see this type of technology helping us solve these big problems, something like climate, what, what tangible things could it do? So it's not especially in this case ChatGPT, right? I'm more talking about this like very good quality predictive model, which is basically what is uh, ChatGPT's model that's very good at predicting, predicting the next word. Uh, but obviously in this case, it's more like fluid dynamics. Uh, if you can have like some very uh, good predictive models, you, you can speed up this computation by a lot. And today they are very, very costly. They're very, very complex. And if you can put deep learning in, this, uh, in these computations, you actually speed them up a lot. Um, but the energy cost of training this model is a big question, right? That's something we, we tackle head on with uh, the large model Bloom that we train. 
And in this case, what we did was to use um, a very, a very specific data center that that was actually um, super efficient in that it's also used to uh, warm the university that it's hosted in. So it's actually a positive. Uh, it's, it's almost a negative uh, impact. Uh, it's also uh, based in France, where you have a, a cocktail with mostly nuclear energy, eighty uh, percent. But I think choosing your data center, like choosing to try to minimize the cost of training this model, that's very important things that... Which university is being warmed by a data center? It's uh, Paris-Saclay, the south of Paris. I think we should do, do that a lot more, like we should use the, this data center to, you know, all the heat they provide to, to warm our cities. What do you say to policymakers who ha have a hard time gra grasping the potential both positive and negative of generative AI. When you meet a policymaker, what do you say to them? What, what, are you, what are you trying to convince them about where things are at right now? <laughs> it's, a, it's also a very wide question. I think in many ways, the, this model, they're really a bit like computers. So they're, they're so versatile, it's a bit like being scared about computers, right? They're like, oh yeah, these things are connected together. Maybe you can do bad things with them. Um, so obviously you can do bad things with computers, right? Um, but obviously you can also do good things. Um, what we try at our level, I would say, is to, um, to do a lot of nudging. Uh, so try to kind of push the whole community in, in a beneficial direction by, you know, rewarding um, good, good ethical uh, action, good, good position. We try to make this kind of a positive uh, mindset in the community so that people from from their own will will kind of do a good thing in terms of politics I think it's really uh, yeah at the application level I think that you want to think okay in this specific field there is a big danger you want to and then here we would like to to prevent that and that might that might be at the model level but much more likely it will be at the deployment level okay how do you reach this type of users? Which kind of interface do you use to communicate with them? Do you have a human in the loop with your model or is your model directly in contact with humans? So there is a lot of question in how you deploy and use this model. And just like computers, right, that will be where actually you want to make some uh, guardrails. Um, I think the idea that you can build all guardrails really inside the model uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm still quite doubtful. I would so as you mentioned, the European Union, it seems to be going down that line, doesn't it, of defining these are the higher risk areas that will need those guardrails and these other areas, we don't need so much regulation. So I guess that could be adopted, a similar thing in the US or elsewhere. But where do you stand on a kind of a more overarching international body? There's people have mentioned like aviation is covered by an international international treaties or nuclear power by uh, an international atomic energy agency. Do you see any benefit of that or will that just be another layer of bureaucracy we could all do without? I, th I think if it's in uh, specific fields, that would make sense. Actually, you know, you were talking about um, airlines. It's actually a very specific field. You know, it's commercial airlines. You don't have the same for like uh, other type of uh, aviation. So I think once you have nailed down a specific field where you think there is here a specific danger that we want to prevent or like specific set might be quite wrong, but they all kind of uh, bear a commonality. Uh, then it makes sense to to make you know some uh, uh, some uh, 
coordination between the various politics you will want. And I would really welcome that. I think, I think regulation at this level will be super positive and super interesting. Uh, but something that just generally covers AI feels to me like, you know, just like something that generally covers computers. It's like, yeah, but will that be able to lead to some concrete recommendation or will it be just, you know, uh, spread over a too wide domain to be really uh, effective? Tell me about yourself. When is there a point in your life where you just realized computers or technology was something that you wanted to pursue? Was, it, was there a moment when you saw or heard about something and you thought, wow, that's what I want to do? Um, not so much I came really late to AI. Well, I was always interested by computers, uh, by the fact that they could do things by themselves, right? That they could like react and they could be some kind of very interesting uh, experience uh, uh, to interact with them. But for a long time, uh, I was not really convinced it was a very serious uh, career. So that's why I became first physicist, uh, doing a PhD in statistical physics, and then a lawyer working on intellectual property law for, for six years. And at some point, I was like, okay, this is still really what I found very interesting all the time as a hobby. Maybe let's try to make it a uh, day-to-day job for a few months, which became a few years with Hugging Face. So, so you're an intellectual property lawyer? Yeah. Okay. And that's a big question, isn't it, in generative AI as well, when you ask it to create an image that looks like something. And there's already lawsuits about this but from companies that produce images that say their images are being used and repurposed? It's a very big question. I think there is two, two huge questions in AI that are, that are not discussed nearly enough. I think one is the training data. Uh, how do we give access? How do we know? How do we have some rights on the training data? How does it influence the model behaviors? Uh, and the other is the, is, the, is the productions of the model, right? Who, who has some right to them? Uh, what if they are really exact copy of something that a human has made and there was or not in the training data set? So these are super interesting question. And that's also why when we just consider AI as a code, we kind of miss all these data question and uh, which are even more important than the model questions. Yeah. I, I used um, Dali to create a picture of my daughter in a kind of a fantasy situation. And it's a great picture. But I'm wondering, do I own it? Is that my picture now? Or does um, OpenAI own it? Or the, the data set where it was generated from? Did, is it clear yet? No, uh, I think nothing clear. Yeah, and I think just like every uh, complex question there, the, the solution will be a mix of, you know, deeply thinking, what does it mean? And also kind of what is the power dynamic in the world today? Uh, knowing that AI companies do have a lot of power at this moment, um, which we see right in the various lawsuit that they're basically moving forward at the moment. What's the next big thing we can expect? A lot of people who weren't paying attention were suddenly amazed when they got access to ChatGPT. I think it's seen as a game changer. Mm-hmm. Do you see, is that just going to carry on as more and more people start accessing that and your own um, uh, uh, chatbot? Or is there going to be another big thing that you can see on the horizon that people are just going to say, <laughs> oh, wow, this is another advance? I think we'll see two, two main things. That uh, The first one is we will see more modalities, right? So DALI, ChatGPT were quite separate. We can see a future where all these kind of become one, one model or one, one type of uh, model that can understand, you know, uh, images, 
maybe sound and that can also produce images and sound. So I think this is more technical point of view. So that would be instead of just the pure text thing that the chatbots are now, it would be more sophisticated with lots of different things you can do with it yeah. straight away. Yeah, this, in, this steady increase in um, competences and in, in skills that you can do. And more generally, I think just uh, what we what we witnessed this year, especially was that these things are really moving from research to like being deployed, right? So we'll see this, um, this AI assistance more and more everywhere. And typically in a few years, you can imagine a world where basically in every know, slightly interactive objects, you will have actually something that's rather smart and understand what you want rather than just be being dumb. So your GPS will be able to understand really what you say in natural language and your computer as well will be able to understand a lot more the context and we have a lot less of this failure where the things we interact with don't really get what we want, right? And so I could see this being a kind of a widespread in our, in our world where every object, human-made objects, will be roughly smarter than, than it is today. When, when will we see that, do you think? When, when will my phone just know what I want and take me where I need to go? I think technology is, is, is almost ready today. Huh? Could be any time. Could be any time. Finally, can I ask you, is there a book and or a film and or a podcast and or anything that you would say, read this or listen to this, either to understand AI or just because you love that book and that film and that podcast? I'm mostly reading, uh, reading books and film in Dutch. Uh, but that's my personal quest of understanding culture a bit more and more. You're learning, uh, you're learning Dutch, right? Yeah. Okay, how's that going? <laughs> it's going well, yeah. Are you using AI to learn Dutch? No, but I think, yeah, uh, Duolingo is already quite impressive. Uh, oh. No, I like this. I like this thing of having personal challenges. Basically, uh, yeah, still trying to see that you can learn something. Uh, that's that's actually quite difficult to learn. Yeah. Here's a philosophical question. That I mean, I've I've learned languages as well and struggled for years. And all the effort you put in. Would you prefer it if you could just download that information into your brain? Or is the struggle of learning it and the experiences you have while you're learning a language, is that important? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because uh, all these new models, they can do crazy stuff, right? If I ask ChatGPT to rewrite something I painfully wrote in English, he can write it better than I do. And that question a little bit, uh, it will question more and more, what are we proud of as human, right? What are we proud of, that we, the things that we do, which one matter or not? And I think the fact that you put some effort in doing something will stay something rewarding. Like, you know, you put a lot of effort in learning to play piano, uh, in learning to uh, maybe paint. Uh, maybe an AI can do that better, but still it's like human skills that you've learned. Just like watching, I think increasingly we've see that we'll see the difference between watching a, a real human do something and watching that on you know, television or something where it might have been like created fully by computers. And, and we've probably seen very soon, you know, films that are mostly created by computers uh, from nothing, right? Not just special effects. And so we'll see, I think, more and more this big difference between seeing a human doing something that's actually difficult to do and, and just watching that on the TV. So I hope actually AI will bring us more together in some way, like uh, re rewarding more human, direct human interaction. There might be that kind of perverse move back 
to that real world thing. I guess vinyl records had a resurgence because everything was available yeah. to download. But yeah. now, which, who, who expected that to happen? So yeah, I Now you, you make a big difference, right, between seeing an artist perform music and just what, like, listening to something because uh, it's some unique experience. Yeah. Tom, thanks very much for joining thanks. us. Thanks. Thank you. Thomas Wolfe is Chief Science Officer at Hugging Face. You also heard Natasha Crampton, Chief Responsible AI Officer at Microsoft. They both spoke to me at the World Economic Forum's Responsible AI Leadership Summit at the end of April 2023. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcast. Please leave us a rating or a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with Ben Larson. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. Don't miss our next episode on AI next week. Meanwhile, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.